0: Here's a question I wanna open up with this morning to have you think about this. How are you handling the trials in your life? We're all experiencing trials, we all do, and I think it's fair to say we we always do, but we're, we're pretty hyper aware, I think, over the last year or two that all of us have faced many trials. Life has been disrupted in so many different ways that certainly caused not just the disruptions to life, but the, the stress and the anxiety and the, the fears and just difficulty, right? How, how are you handling it? Uh, how are you doing in the midst of those things? What has this last year revealed to you about the stability of your faith? How's your faith? Are you experiencing a, uh, a growth and a strengthening of faith? Or would you maybe say that what you've been experiencing is, is less hopeful and more uh, a crisis of faith? If, if that's you, and I think that's probably a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of Christians, say, I, I think the, a crisis of faith describes me more than hopeful, confident faith then I hope that this morning's message is encouraging to you. This is, this is a message for all of us, but I, I, I think it speaks specifically to those of us who are, who are doubting a little bit, who are, who are really struggling, who are trying to keep their, their nose above water and finding that oftentimes they're getting a lot of water in their noses. We started a, a series in First Peter, and I want to rem- remind you of the context here of the letter. First Peter is a letter written to first century churches that were in a region called Asia Minor, we know that today as as Turkey, modern day Turkey. Uh, There were some Jewish people in this church who were converted to Christianity, but primarily these these were non-Jewish people, they were Gentiles, they had a a, a pagan background, they were Greek culturally, they were under Roman political rule at the time, Uh, and and many, probably most of the people in this church had a background in either pagan religion or perhaps no religion at all. And they had come to Christ, and this church, and these churches, I should say, began to form. And they were beginning, because of their faith in Christ, to experience some suffering, some trials, and persecution. Uh, they, were, they were learning how to live the Christian life in the midst of a, of a, of a non Christian world and experiencing marginalization. And it was, it was increasing, it was about to get. Worse. And so what we learned last week from Peter's introduction, the main idea was this is that as Christians, there's nothing about our lives or our circumstances that are an accident. That was the main idea. Paul, or excuse me, Peter was trying to press into them who they are. They are the elect exiles of God. They are those who have been are being sanctified in Christ, being made holy. Right? That, they, they, that this experience that they have is, is, is temporary. We have a home that's in heaven. That doesn't mean that we're not invested in this life. It just means that we have different investment objectives than we had before. Right. This is who you are. There's no accidents that God is working in all of this. The full work of the Trinity is at work in our circumstances. Even our difficult ones to make us holy. Conforming us more to the image of Christ. Sustaining us by his grace, so that grace and peace may abound to us. That was the the foundation that he was laying before getting into more specifics about how to live this life. Know who we are. Know who our God is. We are are his according to his foreknowledge. He knows his people. And he's purposed all things in your life for his glory and your good. Today, as we moved into verse 3 and beyond... He's going to build upon the truths of the gospel in order to relate those truths directly to our daily experience as believers. Kind of move beyond uh, the the big umbrella picture of who we are in Christ and where our confidence is into some, you know, the the rubber meeting the road. Now, last week, I I told you, last week was Reformation Sunday, and I made the, the, the comment that Martin Luther was of the opinion that 1 Peter contains everything that the believer needs to know in order to live the Christian life. And what I want to add on top of that is say this. I'm going to say now that I believe that the next five verses of 1 Peter, so verses 3 through 7, provide us with just about as good a summary of what we need to know to live this life as any other five verses in the whole Bible. To say that another way, if you wanted to distill the proper biblical perspective that a Christian should have down into just three sentences, I don't think you could do it better than Peter does it here. So let's look at it together. 1 Peter 1, I'm going to read verses 3 through 7. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, as we just read this text, I pray that you would press it into our hearts and our minds that you would give us the living hope that's described here by Peter in these verses. Lord, teach us to have the perspective that you want us to have in life, that we may not be discouraged people, but hopeful people. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. What's the main idea of these verses? I think it's this. A biblical perspective of the Christian life looks like this. Present hope, future salvation. The biblical perspective of our lives as Christians is present hope, future salvation. I'll explain more what that means because I think that's what Peter's laying out. What strikes me as I read these verses is how he uses past, present, and future language to help us put this perspective into practice. And this is fundamentally important. I really hope that, that, you, that you guys grab onto this this morning. I firmly believe that if we understand these verses, we will understand the key to living the Christian life with a faith that can and will endure the difficulties of life. A faith that can and will endure the difficulties of life, if we get these verses. Let me state that another way. I firmly believe that most crises of faith are the result of losing or never yet having this biblical perspective. Present hope, future salvation. I'm going to cut right to the chase and lay out for you what I think is the big tension in these verses, And what so often throws Christians for a loop in the way that we think about life, it so often uh, 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 challenges our perspective and causes our faith to waver in despair. Here's the tension. Did you notice how salvation is described in these verses? He talks about salvation quite a bit. Did you notice how he does it? In verse 3, It's all described using past tense language. In other words, he describes our salvation in verse 3 as something that is already a completed action. He says, by God's mercy, he has caused us, that's past tense language, he's caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What he's saying here is we have received God's mercy, and we received it, Of course, through the cross of Christ, whereby Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sin in full. That has already happened. That's already happened. And he says, and by his resurrection, Jesus proves his power to defeat sin's penalty, which is death, by conquering death in power, because he rose again. He's alive again, and that has already happened. And then he talks about how by God's power and initiative through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, he's given us the gifts of repentance and faith to believe this, to believe in Jesus. He says he's caused us to be born again. That's what what being born again is. It's the Spirit giving us a new nature, a new outlook, the faith to see and to believe. Born again, he says, into a living hope. Because Jesus, who is our hope, is living. He's alive. So, again, if you're a Christian, this has already happened for you. These things are are past tense, they're completed actions. The saving work of Jesus has been applied to you. You are saved, Christian. You're saved. You're saved from the judgment of God against sin because you've been redeemed, you've been forgiven. And you have a new nature that is continually making you new in Christ. Back in verse 2, he talks about us being sanctified, right? We're being continually made holy, made new in Christ. That's an ongoing work. So in this sense, we could say our salvation is already accomplished. It's already accomplished. Verse 3 is past tense language. So the question then is, why do the rest of the verses here, why does he use Different language about salvation that's future-oriented. In other words, it's not something that has already been fully attained. Look back down at verse 4. Actually, I'm going to read verse 3 again just so it flows better. Again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance... That is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's future language, right? He's now looking forward to a salvation and inheritance that is not yet obtained, but is kept for us in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, future language. So you you might be a little confused. Peter, in verse 3, it sounds like you're saying salvation is something that we already have. And yet by the time we get to verse 5, you're saying it's something that's yet to be revealed. How do we understand that? Peter is framing our salvation as an already but not yet reality. And in these verses... The emphasis is clearly oriented towards the future, the salvation. When he uses the word salvation, he says it is yet to be revealed. It is kept in heaven for you, which is to say it's real. It's there. It's yours. It is ready. But it's not fully yours yet. Our salvation won't be fully realized until the future. It is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The last time, meaning when Jesus comes again, or if you're called to heaven before he comes back, the last time, that's when salvation will be fully revealed. Christ's past action seals it, his return in the future reveals it. So we have our salvation as primarily something that we're still awaiting. We, we, we have the already, but we're still not yet, right? So when we think about our lives as Christians, we can, we can say, okay, we have this past confidence of what he's done, and we have this future reality to look forward to. What does that mean for the present? What does it mean for us in the present? How does salvation work itself out now? What's our present experience while we wait for the full obtainment of salvation? He says a couple things. Again, verse 3, he says, you have a living hope. That's present. You have hope. It's it's alive because Christ is alive. You are presently, verse 5, being guarded by God's power through faith. His power is is guarding us for this salvation. But then we get to verse 6. He says, and you have trials. Living hope. You're being guarded by faith. But present reality, verse 6, trials. Look back down at the text. He says, In this you rejoice. In everything that I've said before, you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And he explains, he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your present experience, Christians, is you have a living hope, you're being guarded by faith, but your life's gonna be full of trials. That's the perspective Peter wants us to have about our current lives. And as I said earlier, a lot of Christians struggle with that. We struggle with despair, and we struggle with crises of faith because we don't really have that perspective. We don't really get that that's, that's what the here and now is, that's what it's going to look like. We struggle with that because we don't have that perspective. We might say that we, we understand the already not yet tension of salvation, but I think functionally we live like we expect salvation to be fully revealed now. Right? I want it now. In the here and now, we blur the lines between what we should expect in our present salvation with what awaits in our future salvation because we want to believe that the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that we're promised is something God should provide now. And when he doesn't, my faith wavers. When I haven't realized that in this life, I have a crisis why is that? Why is, why is our perspective, like, why is that so hard for us to grab when scripture is so clearly telling us this is what the, is what the Christian life is going to look like? I think this particular confusion is somewhat unique to the church in the modern West. And by that I mean us. <laughs> I mean us. Um, the historical church and the global church, even now, seem to, I think, have adopted Peter's perspective in ways that we haven't yet adopted it. And I wonder why not for so many of us. And here's, here's, a, here's a stab at, at why not. There's a certain level of fragility that seems to have overtaken our culture in the West. A certain level of fragility. And I, I, and I don't want to oversimplify that uh, because there, there's lots of, 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 of complex reasons and explanations and many layered uh, reasons for why we have uh, the fragility that I think we, we have. But I think we can agree, at least on this level, we live in an age that places a high, a very high, and so often unrealistic value on comfort and safety. Right? High, unrealistic value on comfort and safety. Most of us have grown up in this culture, in that society of safety. And some of us have contributed to that. We, we are the generation of car seats and bike helmets, right? We're the generation of safe spaces and trigger warnings. And I, and I please don't misinterpret me on that. I am not mocking that or, or knocking those things. I am all for using safety devices when appropriate. Okay, I'm just trying to highlight something. I'm just trying to highlight something. We have an aversion as a culture to risk and discomfort, more so than I think many previous generations have had. And those of you who are Northwestern students might, might know that your campus RUF director, Chris Colquitt, has written about this. And he talks about it. I, I, I read an article that he wrote for the Gospel Coalition, and I thought, that's what I'm preaching about. Um, and I, and I want to share what he says, because he, he hits the same thing. He, he, he talks about this phenomenon of, of modern culture, the, the fragility of it. And he says, he says, this is our estimation as a culture, that adversity, pain, discomfort, whether it's physical or emotional, is seen as an evil to be avoided adversity pain discomfort it's it's an evil to be avoided it's not an opportunity for growth it's an opportunity for harm and so we have to protect ourselves from it and he he said he says our society has changed the old adage from what doesn't kill you makes you stronger into what doesn't kill you makes you weaker I think think there's some truth to that. And if that more accurately describes our current perspective, and as Christians it describes our current perspective, then what does it do to our present experience of salvation if that experience includes trials and grief? Like Peter says it will. What happens is it leads us to doubt the goodness and the efficacy of our salvation. Right? It leads us to doubt the goodness of God. It can lead to a crisis of faith. God, if you're good and you've truly saved me, how come you haven't rescued me from the pains and the sufferings of life? If you promise peace to those who belong to you. I mean, verse 2 May grace and peace be multiplied to you. If, if these are biblical promises, why does my life lack so much peace? Why are so many of my longings unfulfilled? Why is life still so hard? God, where's our salvation? I mean, if, if we think that adversity, discomfort are evils that we need to be rescued from, then isn't that what salvation should rescue us from? Adversity and discomfort? What is the Lord's prayer? Lord, deliver us from evil. Right? Why aren't you delivering us from discomfort and trial? A crisis of faith, if I start thinking like that. So Peter steps in and says, you know what? You need a better perspective. You need a more biblical perspective. That's his goal here. He says you're going to have trials. So why? Why do we have trials? I'm going to give you three reasons why trials still exist that are biblically informed, and one of them directly out of this passage. The first reason why trials still exist is because life in a fallen world is still hard. That's what we still live in. We read Romans 8 earlier. All of creation is groaning. It is longing for redemption because it's fallen. It's broken. Sin has has wrecked it. Everything is on a trajectory of decay. Life is still hard. And until he comes again and, and he makes it all new, that will continue to be the reality. We have to reckon with that. Just realize We have to admit it. Life is hard. It's hard. And so trials are a part of it. Secondly, as Christians, we have to reckon with this. The Christian experience, because of our faith, will actually be harder, not easier, than the rest of the world. That's the whole reason why Peter is writing this letter to these churches. He's letting them understand that their current experience of marginalization and the coming persecution, it's harder than the life that they had before. Following Jesus is more difficult. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, I don't have a a pillow to lay my head on. I don't have a bed to sleep on at night. Follow me into this life. Being a Christian isn't going to make life easier. It's it's actually going to make life harder. Thirdly, Peter wants us to know this, because those first two ideas may be a little discouraging to you. Life's hard, and as a Christian, it's probably going to be even harder. But he also wants us to know this. Again, verse 7, God is at work in it. God is at work in it. In this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, here's why, he's saying, there's a reason for the trials that you are enduring. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. God is at work in your trials to test your faith. And the testing that he's talking about here is described by the analogy that he uses here about gold. It's not that God is testing you to see if you're going to trip up. It's not that he's testing you to see if you're going to get it wrong. He's He's not your math teacher, right? Throwing a trick question at you every now and again on test. Testing here means refining Like gold is tested and refined. It is is a, a means by which impurities are brought to the top and scraped away. It makes it more pure. He's making you more holy. He's at work in your trials to refine our hearts. For what? He's stripping us of our affections for the perishable the defiled and the fading things of this world that pull our hearts away from him and the living hope that we have in Christ alone. Trials are a way of reminding us that everything in this world is on a trajectory towards decay. This is not where our hope lies. And oftentimes our trials come from our Looking to the things of this world, putting our hope in those things, and God graciously and lovingly as a father strips them away, and it hurts sometimes. But it's for our good. I read a quote from Kevin DeYoung this week. He actually tweeted it on Twitter, but I thought it was pretty good. He said, we might think we're on a journey from point A to point B. That's the Christian life. We're on a journey from point A to point B, but God's intention is often to change us from person A to person B. He's at work in our lives. He is sanctifying us. He's making us more like Christ. So the perspective that Peter wants us to have is, know that that's what this life will bring. If you're looking for the the salvation that's promised to you in the future to meet you in the here and now, you've not really recognized what the Christian life is about. Trials are part of our experience. Waiting, longing, groaning with creation, that's a part of our current experience. But God is at work in it. You can rejoice in it because he's given you everything you need to endure, and it's necessary to prepare you for the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading home that awaits. So having said that, are we just sort of left with being miserable and bummed out about all that? Oh, life's, life's gonna be hard, okay, great. Thanks, Bill. Happy Sunday, right? There's a realism to the Christian life that we're, we need to have. There's a realism here. But does that realism leave us without hope for joy in the present? That's not his point at all. That's not his point at all. Trials aren't the only present reality for Christians. What else is a present reality? Look back at the beginning of verse 6. In this you rejoice. In what? In this fact, these facts, you have a living hope. You have a living hope. That is not an ethereal hope. It is not a wishful thinking kind of hope. It is a certain hope because it's living. It's living. Your hope lives because the the object of your hope is alive. Jesus lives. And in that living hope... You have a new nature. You've been born again. You're promised resurrection with Jesus. You are heirs to an inheritance that is imperishable. It is eternal. It will last forever. Unlike this world that's decaying, our inheritance never decays. It is undefiled. There is no sin, there is no pain, there is no suffering. It is the paradise that we were created for, to be with God forever. That awaits you. It is certain. You have a living hope for this. And it's unfading. It's not just eternal. It's unfading. Our joy there will never be diminished. Think about that. The most joyful things that you can can experience in this life diminish somewhat, right? Everything diminishes, but not our eternal inheritance. The honeymoon never ends. The honeymoon never ends. That's why you can rejoice. You have this to look forward to, and now you are guarded by the power of God through faith. He's not saying that your faith guards you. The power of God guards you. Your faith is in the power of God who guards you through this life. He will not fail to bring his promises of salvation to us in full. You're guarded by faith. Faith is, according to Hebrews 11, the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Again, it's not a, I hope this happens. It's, I know it will happen. And yes, trials are a necessary part of God's work in preparing us for that inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. And so even in our trials, we can rejoice. We just have to have a proper perspective. What does James say in James 1? He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Just like Peter, he's saying, God's at work. God's at work. So you can rejoice in those trials. Verse 7 again. The tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found. This is the the result of that purifying work. It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Praise, glory, honor. I think that's a two-way street. We give praise and glory and honor to Christ when our salvation is revealed. And as as, as, as co-heirs with him, we receive that praise and glory and honor. We share in it with him. And our trials are refining us for that day. What's the hopeful expression of this faith? Verse 8 Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls the Christian life the Christian daily experience is I don't see all of it yet I don't see all of it yet but I have confidence and I love him and I hope in him and I trust in him and in that hope and in that trust he is giving me a resiliency that is joyful it's, it goes beyond comprehension. I mean, how could I possibly rejoice in the midst of difficulties when I know that Jesus is for me and with me and he's working in all this for my good? I have this unexplainable joy. That's what he's telling us. As we're obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, the obtaining there is both future, you will obtain the fullness of this, but even in the now, as he's, refining us and sanctifying us we are obtaining it we're growing more and more in our our experience of the salvation that we have in christ that's the hopeful expression of this faith for us and, and, and he also just, just gives us this, uh, a picture of the surpassing treasure of that present experience, of that present salvation. Look at verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched, they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories and it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look he's saying do you, do, you, do you recognize it even in the difficulties of this life even in the present grieving of trials that this joy this joyful experience of salvation past present and future that you have is so unique to history, that all of the Old Testament prophets who, who were looking forward to it were wondering, how's it going to happen? What's it going to look like? Who is this for? And Peter says, And the Holy Spirit revealed to them that it was for you. And even angels marvel at it. They long to look at that. They, they don't experience salvation like we do. Amazing Reality that belongs to us. So take heart. How will you handle the trials in life? How are you going to navigate the difficulties that are sure to come tomorrow? Are you going to be hopeful? Or will there be a crisis of faith? Peter says, be hopeful. You have a living hope. Don't lose heart. There is peace promised to us now, even in the midst of the trials. What does Jesus say to his disciples? In fact, this is the last thing he said to them before he went to the cross. The last thing he said to them. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace then he said this, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And John, one of the disciples who heard those words, later goes on to write this to the churches. He says, for everyone who has been born of God, and that's us, right? We just read that. You have been born again. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Paul tells the Corinthian churches, he says, we're afflicted in every way. We're not crushed. We're perplexed. We're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says, so don't lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Present hope, future salvation. That's the Christian perspective. By way of application, I. Uh, you know that we, we've got new members who are about to be uh, affirmed at our next members meeting next week. Part of the process of affirming them is we we hear their testimonies Uh, we talked through their testimonies with them and there was a particular testimony that 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 we uh was shared with us as elders this week that i thought man this this really applies this text and i wanted to have you all have an opportunity to hear it because i think this is a better application than i could lay out for you if i tried to come up with one so i'm gonna invite beatrice up here beatrice share your testimony with us Think of what we've just read and see how it applies out in the Christian life. Come on.
1: Hi, I'm Beatrice. Um, So God has been my refuge and strength and an ever-present help in trouble since the day I was born. Or perhaps more accurately, as we learned last week, since I was foreknown at the beginning of time. I could scarcely begin to recount the ways he has shown me his love and his mercy. Um, I could be here for hours, but today I'll focus on how I came to know God's greatest love, which is the love that he made manifest for us when he sent his son to die on the cross for us. And that's the love by which I know that I abide in him and he abides in me. I was born to Christian parents and I grew up going to children's Sunday school. When I was three, my biological father passed away. Uh, My mother raised us on her own, and she was a working mother of two young girls. She remarried when I was nine. While our stepfather professed to be a Christian, he was suspicious of church and didn't like that we were wasting a good portion of our Sunday here, and so we stopped going to church soon after. In my stepfather's eyes, he, we were a family that needed rescuing. So I was a playful and stubborn kid. And I was easily distracted and reluctant to apply myself in school. Um, and my stepdad made it his mission in life to raise my younger sister and I to be good children, or good people. And so he made long lists of rules for me to follow, like I took notes in class, and I when I came home from school, he would check them. Um, and I wrote timetables every day, saying what I was going to do with my time, and most significantly he had us start a daily journal, where I would write down what had happened that day, and all the things that I had done wrong, and all the ways that I could have done better. And he would read those, and then give us feedback on it. His rules worked, so in the eyes of the world, I did become a better person. I got better grades, and I got in trouble less, I started getting leadership positions in school. And most importantly, I had genuinely come to regret the ways that I had been careless and ill-disciplined when I was younger, and I was grateful to my dad for teaching me how to be a responsible and upstanding student. As I entered high school, my dad became increasingly invested in my life and began to control more than just whether or not I was doing my homework. So he would frame every decision as one that was either righteous or unrighteous. It was unrighteous of me to be going out with my friends as opposed to spending more time at home. It was righteous of me to run for class president, but unrighteous if I used my slogans instead of what he wanted me to say. He enforced this control by various means, making me explain why his decisions were better than mine in my daily journals, meeting with my school teachers and convincing them that I needed serious help, and sometimes physically beating me. Above all, my dad justified his authority in my life by saying that he was teaching me to live righteously according to what God wanted me to do. My dad was the main source of Christian teaching that I had since we didn't go to church, and he claimed that he had a right understanding of who God was, and I did not. Everything he wanted me to do was actually what God wanted me to do, and if I didn't understand why, it was because I didn't understand God enough. When I disagreed with him, he told me, of course I would disagree, because I was a sinful person. And he wasn't wrong. I certainly wasn't perfect and I could see that in the way I lived my life. I felt that the control he had over my life was unfair, but I I couldn't shake the feeling that I too had some blame to shoulder for not being able to live up to his rules and expectations, even if they were unreasonable. Every genuinely poor decision I made was proof that I did need oversight. And so I couldn't confidently say that his treatment of me was unjust even if it was harsh. Those years were miserable and hard. My life was consumed by doing what my dad wanted me to do. I had very little control over my time. I had very little control over what I was allowed to do and I lost all sense of self. I lived in confusion and fear constantly second-guessing every decision I was making and even every thought that I had, in case my dad would disapprove. I desperately sought some reprieve from the unending condemnation that told me that I was deficient and unrighteous and just wrong. There's hope in this. (laughs) So when I was 17, my high school German teacher offered to read the Bible with me before class. I agreed because I thought it was something that I could do To be seen as a good girl in my dad's eyes privately i was also hoping that the bible would clarify my understanding of right and wrong and so that maybe one day i could stand up to my dad and say that i too understood what righteousness meant to god reading the bible for myself shocked me i was shocked by three things one the message of the bible was not a scattered list of things to do to live righteously, as my dad had implied it was. The Bible was actually one unified message about Jesus. Two, the message of Jesus was this. God declared that I could not earn my righteousness on my own, unlike what my dad was telling me I needed to do. Rather, the only righteousness that could stand is Jesus's, and he fully imputed that righteousness to me when he died for me on the cross. Three, the above two facts are clear and almost undeniable, rather than subject to personal interpretation, once you put in some basic work into understanding the text. They are plain as day. Through reading the Bible, I was able to see my dad for what he was, nothing but a Pharisee, and a false teacher seeking self-glory. For years, he claimed that I had to follow all of these laws in in order to gain righteousness of God. In fact, the laws he set out were not even God's laws. They were just laws that were convenient for him. The better word I was expecting from the Bible was perhaps a system of laws that made more sense. Instead, the word that I was confronted with was the redeeming and life-giving news of Jesus Christ. To 17-year-old me, this news was really precious. It was like living water in the desert. The word of God, which Paul says is the sword of the spirit, was the first weapon that I had that could really fight against the toxic, toxic narrative that my dad had been feeding me. I had been living in darkness and God shone the light of knowledge of Christ into my heart through his word. I clung on to it for dear life, and I was hungry to read more. I remember on a very hard day after my dad had started a new fight, I came to my German teacher seeking some advice. She didn't have any for me. She simply printed out Romans 8 and had me read it. I cried for hours, and I'll just read the first four again today but according to the spirit. It's not important to me whether or not what my dad had done could be considered abuse. My mom and my sister left our home in December of 2019 during my second year of college. Since then, countless friends and family have offered us explanations of narcissism, gaslighting, and cults of personality to comfort us and help us make sense of our pain. But none of those explanations will ever be as true as the truth revealed in God's word. And none of those explanations will ever set me free in the same way that reading the Bible for the first time did, even when I was at the height of my pain. This is very clear to me. God did not rescue me by saving me from my circumstances. The story of God's grace in my life was not saving me from an imperfect earthly father. He rescued me 2,000 years ago when he sent his son to give his life for me, to free me from the bondage of sin and adopt me as his own. It is a grace that is complete, that is perfect, and that is not bound by circumstance. It is true salvation. The comfort that the gospel offers us in suffering is no consolation prize. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And even in our trials, even if we walk as exiles here on earth, God is not ashamed to be called our God. For he has prepared for us a heavenly city. He has kept for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So, to me, 10 years of hurt is nothing compared to the hope I I profess now, which gives me freedom in this life and grants me eternity in the next. And I am deeply grateful for what I went through, if only to make me cling even more dearly to the truth. The truth that we, as sinful human beings, are prone to reject, if not for the work of the Spirit and the grace of God. And I know that the trials I faced was God's grace to me, to point me towards my ultimate salvation and my future home. For years, I wished that my stepfather loved me more, even if I may not have deserved it. I was not prepared for the overwhelming, steadfast love that my father gives me freely when he chose to call me his child, especially when I didn't deserve it. The resurrection hope is what I profess. And his love is what will sustain me all the days of my life. Yeah. (laughs)
0: That's a biblical perspective. That's a biblical perspective. That's where I think Peter bookends all that he said to us in these verses verse 3 blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ praise be to god we can be thankful to god right we can be thankful to god because all of these things are true even in the difficulties of life all that we have our salvation it's real it's true it awaits And the other bookend then is verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action, be sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hopeful thoughts and actions, thankful attitudes and hearts. That's a biblical perspective. So Lord, I pray that you would drive that into us and sustain us this week, Lord. Give us this perspective as we live this life in a living hope. Even as life is hard and challenging and full of trials, Lord, let us live in the light of the living hope that we have. Our salvation is past, present, and future. Our salvation is certain. We thank you for Jesus in whom that's true.